Chapter Eight of My Danish Sweetheart, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilkie Mills, Buffalo, New York. My Danish Sweetheart, Volume One, by William Clark Russell. Chapter Eight, Adrift. It was necessary that we should have everything in readiness before we carried poor Captain Nielsen out of his cabin. I unshipped the gangway and, watching an opportunity as the swell lifted the raft against the side of the bark, stooping to it, I sprang. But I could not have imagined the weight and volume of the swell until I had gained the frail platform. Indeed, one could feel that the wrath kindled by the tempest still lived in the deep bosom of the ocean. It was like a stern, revengeful breathing, but the wind was light, and the water but delicately brushed, and it was easy to foresee that if no more wind blew, the swell would have greatly flattened down by sunset. Yet, the manner in which the hull and the raft came together terrified me with a notion of our contrivance going to pieces. I called to Helga. As she threw to me or handed the several parcels and articles we had collected upon the deck, that there was not a moment of time to waste, that we must get her father onto the raft without delay, and then, when I had hastily stowed the last of the things, I sprang aboard again and was going straight to the captain's berth, when I suddenly stopped and exclaimed, First, how is he to be removed?' She eyed me piteously. Perhaps her seamanship did not reach that height or maybe her fear that we should cause her father pain impaired her perception of what was to be done. Let me think now, said I. It is certain that he must be lowered to the deck as he lies in his cot. Does he swing by hooks? I did not observe. Yes, she answered. What you would call the clues come together to a point as in a hammock, and spread at the foot and head. Then there must be iron eyes in the upper deck, cried I, to receive the hooks. Now see here. We shall have to get a sling at each end of the cot, attach a line to it, the ends of which we will pass through the eyes, and when this is done we will cut away the clues, and so lower him. Yes, that will do, said I. I have it, and looking about me for such thickness of rope as I needed, I overhauled some fathoms, passed my knife through the length, and together we hastened to the captain's berth. "'What is it now?' he asked in a feeble voice as we entered. "'Everything is ready, Captain Nielsen,' said I. "'There is no time to lose. The cargo is washing about in the hold, and the ship has not another hour of life left in her.' "'What is it that you want?' said he, looking dully at the coil of rope I held in my hand. "'Father, we are here to carry you to the raft.' "'To the raft!' he exclaimed with an air of bewilderment, and then he added, while I noticed a little color of temper enter his cheeks, "'I have nothing to do with your raft. It was in your power to save the poor Annie. If she is to founder, I will go down with her.' So saying, 
he folded his arms upon his bosom in a posture of resolution, viewing me with all the severity his sickness would suffer his eyes to express. Nevertheless, there was a sort of silliness in the whole manner of him which might have persuaded the most heedless observer that the poor fellow was rapidly growing less and less responsible for his behavior. Had he been a powerful man, or indeed possessed the use of his extremities, I should have dreaded what is termed a scene. As it was, nothing remained but to treat him as a child, to tackle him with all tenderness, but as swiftly as possible, and to get him over the side. There was a dreadful expression of distress in Helga's face when she looked at him, but her glances at me were very full of assurance that she was of my mind, and that she would approve and be with me in sympathy in whatever I resolved to do. Whipping out my knife, I cut lengths off the rope I held to make slings of. I carried one of these slings to the cot and passed it over the end. The captain extended his hand and attempted to thrust me aside. The childlike weakness of that trembling push would, in a time of less wretchedness and peril than this, have unnerved me with pity. Bear with me. Be yourself, captain. Show yourself the true Danish sailor that you are at heart. For Helga's sake, I exclaimed. He covered his eyes and sobbed. I secured the slings to the cot, and, until we lowered him to the deck, he held his face hidden in his hands. I rove two lengths of line through the iron eyes at which the cot slung, in the manner I had described to Helga, and when the weight of the cot was on these lines, we belayed one end, holding by the other. I then passed my knife through the clues, as it would be called, or thin lines which supported the cot, and, going to the rope I had belayed, bade Helga lower her end as I lowered mine, and the cot descended safely to the deck. The girl then came round to the head of the cot, and together we dragged it out of the house on to the deck. Saving a little wrench when we hauled the cot over the combing of the deck-house door, the poor man was put to no pain. It was merciful indeed that he should have lain ill in the deck-house, for had he occupied a cabin below, I cannot imagine how we should have got him out onto the deck without killing him with the anguish which we should have been forced by our efforts to cause him. When we had got him to the gangway, I sprang onto the raft and caught hold of the block that dangled at the extremity of the yard-arm tackle. With this I returned to the bark, and just as we had got the raft over, so did we sway the poor captain on to her. I got on to the raft to receive him, as Helga lowered the cot. He descended gently, and on my crying, Let go! She swiftly released the line, and the tackle overhauled itself to the roll of the vessel. I remember exclaiming, Thank God! when this job was ended, and I had unhooked the block as though the worst was over, and indeed, in the mere business of abandoning the bark, the worst had ended with the bestowal of the sick and helpless captain on the raft. But what was now to begin? My thank God seemed to sound like a piece of irony in my heart when I looked from the deep, wet, gleaming side of the leaning hull, waving her wrecked spars in the reddening light of the sun, 
When I looked from her, I say, to seawards, where the flowing lines of the lifting and falling swell were running bald and foamless into the southwest sky. Helga came to the gangway and called to know if all were well with her father. All is well, I answered. Come now, Helga, there is nothing to detain us. We shall be wise to cast adrift from the bark. She is very much down by the head, and the next dip may be her last. A few minutes cannot signify, she cried. There are one or two things I should like to bring with me. I wish to possess them, if we are preserved. Make haste, then, I called. She disappeared, and I turned to the captain. He looked up at me out of his cot, with eyes in which all the fervish fire of the morning was quenched. Is Helga remaining in the bark? he asked listlessly. God forbid, cried I. She will be with us in a minute or two. It is a cruel desertion, said he. Poor Annie, you are to have been kept afloat. It was idle to reason with him. He was clothed as I had found him when I had first seen him, in a waistcoat and serge coat, and a shawl round his neck. But he was without a hat, a thing to be overlooked at such a time as this, and the lower part of him was protected only by the blankets he lay under. There was still time to supply his requirements. I had noticed his wide awake and long cloak hanging in his berth, and I immediately sprang on board, rushed aft, procured them, and returned. Helga was still below. I put the hat on the captain's head and clasped the cloak over his shoulders, fretting over the girl's absence, for every minute was communicating a deadlier significance to the languid, sickly, dying motions of the fast-drowning hull. I think about ten minutes had passed since she left the bark side to go to her cabin, when, bringing my eyes away from the sea, into whose eastern quarter I had been gazing with some wild hope or fancy in me of a sail down there, though it proved no more than a feather-tip of cloud, I saw Helga in the gangway. I say Helga, but for some moments I did not know her. I started and stared as if she had been a ghost, instead of the boyish figure to which my sight was already used. There stood in the aperture betwixt the bulwarks, which we called the gangway, a girl who looked at least half a head taller than Helga, who had been my associate. I might have guessed at once that this appearance of stature in her was due to her gown, but as I did not suspect that she had gone to change her dress, her suggestion of increased height completed the astonishment and perplexity with which I regarded her. She stood on the leaning and swaying side of the bark, as perfect a figure of a maiden as mortal eyes could wish to rest on. Her dress was of a dark blue serge that clung to her. She also wore a cloth jacket, thinly edged about the neck and where it buttoned with fur, and upon her head was a turban-shaped hat of sealskin, the dark, glossy shade of which brightened her short hair into a complexion of the palest gold. She held a parcel in her hand and called to me to take it from her. I did so and cried, you will not be able to jump from the gangway. Get into the forechains, and I will endeavor to haul the raft up to you. 
But even as I spoke she grasped her dress, and disclosed her little feet, and with a bound gained the raft as it rose with the swell, yielding on her knees as she struck the platform with the grace that nothing but the teaching of old ocean could have communicated to her limbs. "'Thank God you are here!' I cried, catching her by the hand. I was growing uneasy. In another minute I should have sought you.' She faintly smiled, and then turned eagerly to her father. "'I have my mother's portrait,' said she, pointing to the parcel, "'and her Bible. I would not bring away more. If we are to perish, they will go with us.' He looked at her with a lackluster eye, and in a low voice addressed a few words to her in Danish. She answered in that tongue, glancing down at her dress, and then at me, and added in English, "'It was time, father. The hard work is over. I may be a girl now.' And looking along the sea, she sighed bitterly. Her father brought his knitted hands together to his brow and never could I have imagined the like of the look of mental anguish that was on his face as he did this. But what I am here narrating did not occupy above a minute or two. Indeed, a longer delay than this was not to have been suffered if we desired the raft to hold together. I let go the line that held the little structure to the bark, and getting the small studding-sail boom over, that is, the boom we had shipped to serve as a signal-mast, I thrust with it, and Helga helping me, we got the raft clear of the side of the vessel. The leewardly swell on which we rode did the rest for us, and not a little rejoiced was I to find our miserable fabric gradually increasing its distance from the Annie. For if the bark foundered with us close alongside, we stood to be swamped in the vortex, the raft scattered, and ourselves left to drown. It now wanted about twenty minutes to sundown. A weak air still blew, but the few clouds that lived in the heavens floated overhead apparently motionless. Yet the swell continued large, to our sensations at least, upon that flat structure, and the slope of the platform rapidly grew so distressing and fatiguing to our limbs, that we were glad to sit and obtain what refreshment we could from a short rest. Among the things we had brought with us was the bull's-eye lamp, together with a can of oil, a parcel of meshes, and some lucifer matches. I said to Helga, We should step or set up our mast before it grows dark. Why? she inquired. The flag we hoist will not be seen in the dark, knowing that the mast was there for no other purpose than to display a flag on. But we ought to light the lamp and masthead it, said I, and keep it burning all night if God suffers us to live through the night. Who can tell what may come along, what vessel invisible to us may perceive the light? She answered quickly, Yes, your judgment is clearer than mine. I will help you to set up the mast. Her father again addressed her in Danish. She answered him, and then said to me, My father asks why we are without a sail. I thought of a sail, I replied, speaking as I went about to erect the mast, but without wind it could not serve us, and with wind 
it would blow away like a cobweb. It would have occupied too much time to rig and securely provide for a sail. Besides, our hopes could never lie in the direction of such a thing. We must be picked up. There is no other chance for us. The captain made no response, but sat, propped up on his pillows, motionless, his eyes fixed upon the bark. The sun had sunk, but a strong scarlet yet glowed in the western sky by the time we had erected and stayed the spar. I then lighted the lamp and ran it aloft by means of a line and a little block which I had taken care to throw into the raft. This finished, we seated ourselves. There was now nothing more to be done but watch and pray. This was the most solemn and dreadful moment that had as yet entered into the passage of our fearful and astonishing experience. In the hurry and agitation of leaving the bark, there had been scarcely room for pause. All that we could think of was how quickly to get away, how speedily to equip and launch the raft, how to get Captain Nielsen over, and the like. But all this was ended. We could now think and I felt as if my heart had been suddenly crushed in me as I sat on the slanting, falling, and rising platform, viewing the bark that lay painted in clear black lines against the fast-dimming glow in the west. Helga sat close against her father's cot. So far as I was able to distinguish her face, there was profound grief in it, and a sort of dismay, but no fear. Her gaze was steady, and the expression of her mouth firm. Her father kept his eyes rooted upon his ship. I overheard her address him once or twice in Danish, but getting no reply, she sighed heavily and held her peace. I was too exhausted in body and spirit to desire to speak. I remember that I sat, or rather squatted, Lascar fashion, upon the hatch cover that somewhat raised the platform on the raft, with my hands clasped upon my shins, and my chin on a level with my knees, and in this posture I continued for some time motionless, watching the Annie, and waiting for her to sink, and realizing our shocking situation to the degree of that heart-crushing sensation in me which I have mentioned. I was exactly clad as I had been when I boarded the bark out of the lifeboat. Never once, indeed, from the hour of my being in the vessel down to the present moment had I removed my oilskins, saving my sou'wester, which I would take from my head when I entered the cabin, and I recollect thinking that it was better for me to be heavily than thinly clad, because being a stout swimmer, a light dress, would help me to a bitter long battle for life, whereas the clothes I had on must make the struggle brief, and speedily drag me down into peace, which was, indeed, all that I could bring my mind to dwell upon now. For when I sent my glance from the raft to the darkening ocean, I felt hopeless. The rusty hectic died out, the night came along in a clear dusk with a faint sighing of wind over the raft every time the swell threw her up. There was a silver curl of moon in the southwest, but 
she was without power to drop so much as a flake of her light into the dark shadow of water under her. Yet the starlight was in the gloom, and it was not so dark but that I could see Helga's face in a sort of glimmer, and the white outline of the cot and the configuration of the raft upon the water in dusty strokes. The bark floated at about a cable's length distant from us, a dark mass, rolling in a strangling manner, as I might know by the sickly slide of the stars in the squares of her rigging and along the pallid lines of the canvas stowed upon her yards. There was more tenancy of life in her than I should have believed possible, and I said to Helga, If this raft were a boat, I would board the bark and set her on fire. She may float through the night, for who is to know but that one of her worst leaks may have got choked, and the blaze she would make might bring us help. The captain uttered some exclamation in Danish, in a small but vehement and shrill tone. He had not spoken for above an hour, and I had believed him sleeping or dying and speechless. "'What does he say?' I called across softly to Helga. "'That the Annie might have been saved had we stood by her,' she answered, struggling as I could hear by the tremor in her voice to control her accents. "'No, no!' said I, almost gruffly, I fear, with the mood that was upon me of helplessness, despair, and the kind of rage that comes with perception that one is doomed to die like a rat, without a chance, without a soul of all those one loves knowing one's fate. No, no, I cried. The Annie was not to be saved by us two, nor by twenty like us, Helga. You know that, for it is like making me responsible for our situation here to doubt it. I do not doubt it, she answered firmly and reproachfully. Captain Nielsen muttered in his native tongue, but I did not inquire what he said, and the hush of the great ocean night, with its delicate threading of complaining wind, fell upon us. My temper of despair was not to be soothed by recollection of this time yesterday, by perception of the visible evidence of God's mercy in this tranquillity of sky and sea, at a time when, but for the change of weather, we had certainly been doomed. I was young. I passionately desired to live. Had death been the penalty of the lifeboat attempt, I might, had time been granted me, have contemplated my end with the fortitude that springs from the scent of having done well. But what was heroic in this business had disappeared out of it when the lifeboat capsized and left me safe on board. It was now no more than a vile passage of prosaic shipwreck, with its attendant horror of lingering death, and nothing noble in what had been done, or that might yet have been done, to prop up my spirits. Thus I sat, full of wretchedness, and miserably thinking, mechanically eyeing the dusky heap of bark, then breaking away from my affecting reverie, I stood up holding by the mast, to carefully sweep the sea, with a prayer for the sight of the colored gleams of a steamer's lights, since there was nothing to be expected in the way of sail in this calm that was upon the water. 
I was thus occupied when I was startled by a strange cry. I cannot describe it. It resembled the moan of a wild creature wounded to death, but with a human note in it that made the sound something not to be imagined. For an instant I believed it came from the sea, till I saw by the dim light of the starshine the figure of Captain Nielsen in a sitting posture, pointing with the whole length of his arm in the direction of his bark. I looked and found the black mass of hull gone, and nothing showing but the dark lines of spars and rigging that melted out of my sight as I watched. A noise of rending, intermingled with the shock of an explosion, came from where she had disappeared. It signified no more than the blowing up of the decks as she sank, but the star-studded vastness of gloom made the sound appalling beyond language to convey. "'Help!' cried Helga. "'My father is dying!' I gained the side of the cot in a stride and kneeled by him. But there was no more to be seen of his face than the mere faint whiteness of it, and I could not tell whether his eyes were open or not. Imagining, but scarcely hoping, that a dram might put some life into the poor fellow, I lowered the bull's-eye lamp from the masthead to seek for one of the jars of spirits we had stowed. But when we came to put the tin pannikin to his lips, we found his teeth set. He is not dead, Helga, I cried. He is in a fit. If he were dead, his jaw would drop. And this I supposed, though I knew little of death in those days. I flashed the bull's-eye upon his face, and observed that though his eyes were open, the pupils were upturned and hidden. This, with the whiteness of the skin and the emaciation of the lineaments, made a ghastly picture of his countenance, and the hysteric sob that Helga uttered as she looked made me grieve that I should have thrown the light upon our father. I mastheaded the lamp again, and crouched by the side of the cot, talking to Helga across the recumbent form in it. Who could remember what was said at such a time? I weakly essayed to cheer her, but soon gave up, for here was the very figure of death himself lying between us, and there was death awaiting us in the black invisible folds in which we swung. And what had I to say that could help her heart at such a time? Occasionally I would stand erect and peer around. The weak wind that went moaning past us as the raft rose to the liquid heave had the chill in it of the ocean in October, and fearing that Helga's jacket did not sufficiently protect her, I pulled off my oilskin coat. There is no warmer covering for ordinary apparel, and induced her to put it on. Her father remained motionless but by stooping my ear to his mouth I could catch the noise of his breathing as it hissed through his clenched teeth. Yet it was a sort of breathing that would make one expect to hear it die out in a final sigh at any minute. I mixed a little spirit and water and gave it to the girl and obliged her to swallow the draught and begged her to eat for the sake of the life and heart food would give her. But she said, No! and her frequent sighing, sobbing silenced me on that head, for now could one grieving as she did swallow food? 
I filled the pannikin for myself and emptied it, and ate a biscuit and a piece of cheese, which were near my hand in an interstice of the raft, and then lay down near the cot, supporting my head on my elbow. Never did the stars seem so high, so infinitely remote, as they seemed to me that night. I felt as though I had passed into another world that mocked the senses with a few dim semblances of things which a little while before had been real and familiar. The very parring of moon showed small as though looked at through an inverted telescope, and measurelessly remote. I do not know why this should have been, yet once afterward, in speaking of this experience to a man who, in a voyage to India, had fallen overboard on such another night as this, and swam for three hours, he told me that the stars had seemed to him as to me, and the moon, which to him was nearly full, appeared to have shrunk to the size of the planet Venus. After a while, the captain's breathing grew less harsh, and Helga asked me to bring the lamp that she might look at him. His teeth were no longer set, and his eyes as in nature, saving that there was no recognition in them, and I observed that he stared straight into the brilliant glass of magnified flame, without winking or averting his gaze. I propped him up, and Helga put the pannikin to his lips, but the fluid ran from the corners of his mouth, upon which I let him rest upon his pillows, softly begging the girl to let God have his way with him. "'He cannot last through the night!' she exclaimed in a low voice, and the wonderful stillness upon the sea, unvexed by the delicate winnowing of the draught, gathered to my mood an extraordinary emphasis from my being able to hear her light utterances as distinctly as though she whispered in a sick-room. "'You are prepared, Helga?' said I. "'No, no!' she cried with a little sob. "'Who can be prepared to lose one that is dearly loved? "'We believe we are prepared. "'We pray for strength. "'But when the blow falls, it finds us weak and unready. "'When he is gone, I shall be alone. "'And, oh, to die here!' "'We sank into silence. "'Another hour went by.' and I believe I had fallen into a light, troubled doze, less sleepful than a waking daydream, when I heard my name pronounced, and instantly started up. "'What is it?' I cried. "'My father is asking for you,' answered Helga. I leaned over the cot and felt for his hand, which I took. It was of a death-like coldness and moist. "'I am here, Captain Nielsen,' said I. "'If God preserve you,' he exclaimed very faintly, "'you will keep your word?' "'Be sure of it, be sure of it,' I said, "'knowing that he referred to what had passed between us about Helga. "'I thank you,' he whispered. "'My sight seems dark. "'Yet is not that the moon down there?' "'Yes, father.' answered the girl. Helga, he said, 
Did you not tell me you had brought your mother's likeness with you? It is with us and her Bible, father. Would to God I could look upon it, said he, for the last time, Helga, for the last time. Where is the parcel? I asked. I have it close beside me, she answered. Open it, Helga, said I. The lamp will reveal the picture. Again I lowered the bull's-eye from the masthead, and, while Helga held the picture before her father's face, I threw the light upon it. It was a little oil painting in an oval gilt frame. I could distinguish no more than the face of a woman, a young face with a crown of yellow hair upon her head. The sheen of the lamp lay faintly upon the profile of Helga. All else, saving the picture, was in darkness, and the girl looked like a vision upon the blackness behind her as she knelt with the portrait extended before her father's face. He addressed her in weak and broken tones in Danish, then turned his head and slightly raised his arm, as though he wished to point to something up in the sky, but was without power of limb to do so. On this, Helga withdrew the portrait, and I put down the lamp, first searching the dark line of ocean, now scintillant with stars, before sitting again. As the moon sank, spite of her diffusing little or no light, a deeper dive seemed to come into the night. The shooting stars were plentiful and betokened, as I might hope, continuance of fair weather. Here and there hovered a steam-colored fragment of cloud. An aspect of almost summer serenity was upon the countenance of the sky, and though there was the weight of the ocean in the swing of the swell, there was peace, too, in the regularity of its run, and in the soundless motion of it as it took us, sloping the raft, after the manner of a seesaw. In a boat, aboard any other contrivance than this raft put together by inexpert hands, I must have felt grateful, deeply thankful to God indeed, for this sweet quietude of air and sea that had followed the roaring conflict of the long hours now past. But I was without hope, and there can be no thankfulness without that emotion. These were the closing days of October. November was at hand. Within an hour, this sluggish breathing of air might be storming up into such another hurricane as we were fresh from. And what then? Why, it was impossible to fancy such a thing even, without one's spirits growing heavy as lead, without feeling the presence of death in the chill of the night air. No, for this passage of calm, God forgive me, I could not feel grateful. The coward in me rose strong. I could not bless heaven for what affected me as a brief pause before a dreadful end, that this very quiet of the night was only to render more lingering and fuller, therefore, of suffering. Captain Nielsen began to mutter. I did not need to listen to him for above a minute to gather that he was delirious. I could see the outline of Helga against the stars bending over the cot. The thought of this heroic girl's distress, of her complicated anguish, rallied me. 
and I broke in a very passion of self-reproach from the degradation of my dejection. I drew to the cot, and Helga said, "'He is wandering in his mind,' she added with a note of wailing in her voice, "'Yeg er nu Elena, yeg er nu by which she signified that she was now alone. I caught the meaning of the sentence from her pronunciation of it, and cried, "'Do not say that you are alone, Helga. Besides, your father still lives. Hark, what does he say?' So far he had been babbling in Danish. Now he spoke in English, in a strange voice that sounded as though proceeding from someone at a distance. It is so, you see. The storks did not return last spring. There was to be trouble. There was to be trouble. Ha! Here is Pastor Madsen. Elsa, my beloved Elsa, here is the good Pastor Madsen. And there, too, is Rector Grunland. Will he observe us? Elsa, he is deep in his book. Look! He cried a little shrilly, pointing with a vehemence that startled me into following the indication of his shadowy, glimmering hand directed into the darkness over the sea. It is calling Latin school. Nay, it is Rector Grunland's personage garden. Ah, Rector, you remember me? This is the little Elsa that your good wife thought the prettiest child in Denmark. And this is Pastor Madsen. He paused, then muttered in Danish, and fell silent. End of chapter 8 Recording by Wilkie Mills, Buffalo, New York.